Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, May the 10th, 2018. We are up to episode 2216 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Thursday, that means it is Listener Calls Day. This is where you call in your questions for me. Ask me anything you want to, give me some information, give me your opinion, do whatever you want to do, as long as you think about it before you do it, because we do encourage independent thought and thinking here at the Survival Podcast. The number to call, therefore, is called the Think Line. That number is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those that want the numbers alone, 866-658-4465. Now, if you call that number, I won't be answering it and talking to you live on the air because it's a podcast and it means it's pre-recorded and we all know that that means I'm not actually you know, broadcasting live like the radio. Anyway, you will get a message you, and you will say to leave me a message and you leave me a message and it will come to me through the magic of the interwebs as an email with an audio attachment and you might hear yourself on the air. The other way is to go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on contact. And you can use the speak pipes to also send me an audio message from your computer with microphone or your phone or any other internet-enabled device with a microphone. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about getting into food production fast on a new property and why maybe we want to hold our horses a little bit. An on-the-ground report of volcanic activity in Hawaii from just a day ago. Uh, setting up a fishing kit for the new or returning fishermen. Building a new house. What would I do from a blank slate? The right way to cook and eat an artichoke and what you can and cannot eat. Bringing in topsoil for lawn and garden. And choosing an air pistol for small game hunting. And before we get to your calls, let me remind you real quick that you can help support this show by doing what? Becoming a member of the MSB, a.k.a. the Members Support Brigade. Uh, that's where you can say, hey, you know what? I think Jack's show's worth 20 cents an episode. You join for 50 bucks a year, and then you get a bunch of really great discounts to like over 70 companies. And if you take advantage of just a few, three or four of those uh, discounts a year in general, you'll get your money back. That means you can support the show and have it not actually cost you anything. That's how I set that program up. If you check it out, you uh, might decide it's worth joining if you haven't done so. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. If you're a prior member and your account's expired and you'd like to uh, come back and you'd like a special discount, email me, tell me your current username or your last username, whatever it is, and uh, I'll do something for you. I don't know exactly what yet. Make sure you put TSPC uh, membership in the uh, subject line. And if you are are an expired member, You want an incentive to come back. I'll do something for you if you email me. I feel like it's a good thing to do today. With that, let's go ahead and get into your first call. This one is getting into food production fast on a new property. Hi, Jack. It's Sam from Michigan calling. Um, I'm closing on a 17-acre piece of property on Friday, and I'm not going to take possession until June. Uh, My question is, what what is the easiest way to get the most food production going? within the first year, starting that late in the season. Also, whatever thoughts you have on buying your first property and things you should look for would be really appreciated as well. Again, Sam, have a great day. Well, first, congratulations. I mean, 17 acres of uh, property is just a beautiful thing to have. If you do nothing but let it be a park in a woods that you walk around, then it's just awesome. So congratulations. 
uh, to get as much food production as possible. So that sounds very trophy hunter-ish. And I don't put trophy hunters down, but some places trophy hunter uh, mentality doesn't really work out. And I would say here is probably a place where if you try to worry about doing as much as you can as fast as possible, it will probably bite you in the ass. Um, a couple acres can get away from you real quick with uh, all the things you want to do, uh, thinking you're going to get them done and, and, and trying to go too fast and making errors along the way, and then end up spending a lot more time fixing what you did wrong Uh, than getting it right in the first place and taking a little bit longer to get there. So the first advice that I give anybody when it comes to a new property is take some time to get to know the property. And if you're going to start with anything right away, start with your zone one design. The kitchen garden, herb garden, basic vegetable garden type situation is really where I think you should start. Um The, the the thing that produces food quickly is annuals, and the annuals that produce the fastest return are greens. So things like lettuces and spinaches, arugula, and stuff like that. And they also tend to handle your first frost fairly well if you start getting into succession planning and what have you, and you've got some that are you know at least a little bit along the way by the time that first frost hits, many of those plants They laugh at not, not necessarily at a, a deep Michigan freeze, but at a frost, initial freezes. They just kind of laugh on it and keep going. Uh, your brassias is, you know, if you get things established and start planting them, you know, toward mid-August, you probably can get good brassia harvest going into the Thanksgiving time frame. And by that I'm talking about kale and broccoli and maybe even a fall pea crop where you're at. You could probably plant peas as soon as the summer heat breaks. These are all the types of things that you can do. However, what I'm really going to say is you want to pull back and you want to ask yourself, what do you see yourself doing with this property long term? And it might be that this year, and what's left of it, is mostly an infrastructure year for everything else. If you're going to eventually have chickens, well, you need a coop and you need a way to contain and move them around. And that might be worth doing before you even think about buying a chicken. That said, you know, if you do that right, then, you know, September is a time that nobody gets their chicks, and it's a great time to get chicks. Because you're looking at about 22 to 24 weeks, about six months of age, age before they start producing for you. So that would give you plenty of time to get all the infrastructure for chickens. And if you're going to do it, don't let me talk you into it. And then, you know, you're looking at birds starting to lay in, in, in late winter, February, March, And you've got a steady supply of eggs then, and you have plenty of time to bring in new birds whenever your birds are atrophying because they've stopped laying. Or if you, and again, I'm not trying to talk you into anything or saying you should do something like whatever you're gonna do. This is how you need to think about it. So if you want to do rabbits instead of chickens, or rabbits in addition to chickens, you know, figure out where your hutches are gonna go, how you're gonna deal with your winter and make sure that they don't get too cold. How do you deal with the summer, make sure they don't get too hot? All of those things. So really kind of rein in the whole, I want as much as I can get as fast as possible. Now, quick production. The fastest production to be able to start eating food, you know, you don't need 17 acres for, you don't need 17 square feet for. It's microgreens. Uh, you know, daikon radish and uh, uh, black hole sunflower, probably your two most, you know, reliable, predictable, doable, ease of use microgreens. And so that... You know, the, the reason I even bring that up is it ties right back into the whole concept of doing greens, right? Your green leafy vegetables. Because once it's big enough to cut, 
and come again, you can start harvesting it. And you can harvest it in little pieces, parts all the way through. Starting in June in Michigan is kind of a tall order for you know your typical garden production. Uh, most of your um, you know your squashes, you know maybe that's actually not bad. You know, have a lot of them that are 90 to 110 days. So you got June, July, August, September. You're harvesting squash, so that's a, a pretty reliable, storable uh, thing. Uh, things like Waltham butternut would be a really great uh, plant. They don't need a ton of soil improvement as long as you do some organic fertilizing. You may not even need to worry about a garden bed for them. If you have some decent soil uh, and you have some areas with the right solar aspect that, that aren't all grown in with something else, you know, drop a few seeds in, give them some water and some uh, mulch, and you may do very well with that uh, with a, a significant harvest. Ten, you know, ten. Uh, butternut squash plants will give you probably an average of five squash per plant. That's 50 butternuts. That's a lot of butternut squash, even if some of them are kind of small because you're starting a little later than you otherwise would. What I'll advise you against, a lot of people in your situation would start starting plants right now. Moving sucks. It's the last thing you want to be dealing with is that. I mean, I'd go out and buy plants from somebody after you get an area set up. But, I mean, I would personally, having been through this now enough, focus on let's design, let's spend the next few weeks designing and planning how we're going to do this long term, and then let's bite off a piece at a time and put in the infrastructure. I would really look at building or buying a great greenhouse uh, for Michigan. I think that's a really... Uh, a wonderful idea. If you can do any kind of in-ground earth contact structure with that, that's even better with the right solar aspect. That'll give you a lot more longevity going into winter. But in that northern of a climate, anything you can do to extend your season would be a great idea. Um, and, and that will give you a head start on next year with starting plants and things like that. Uh, those are all the things that I think you should be looking at right now. You know, with 17 acres, you can. There's so many things you can do. If you're going to want to do something like goats or you know a couple cows or, or whatever, you need to start looking at. Well, how do I set up my paddock rotation? If you're going to do pigs on pasture, anything, whatever. It was chickens with chicken tractors on pasture for meat. And, and I will tell you that that's one of the really beautiful things about the northern climates is they are great meat production climates, especially short duration meat. You know, pigs at seven months from, you know, piglets to harvest size, uh, chickens at eight to ten weeks. These are great animals to run because while your growing season is rather short, the production during that growing season with the long light is just wonderful as far as pasture. Uh, so it, it gives you a lot of opportunity there. So that's That's the way I'm going to steer you, is to, to really spend a lot of time right now thinking, planning, and implementing. And then everybody needs to remember this. When you look at something, so I'll put in uh, four garden beds, and that's going to take me a Saturday. It's probably going to take you three times as long as you think it is, especially if you've never done it before. And I even find, even when you have done it before, you have a selective memory. And uh, as we get older, what we used to do in a day takes two. Uh, just all just good things to think about when you're planning. Good question. Congratulations again on your property. As far as what to look for in a new property, man, I'm going to tell you it's what you want, and can you have the freedom to do that? 
Those are the things I'm looking at. Proximity to the types of services and, and, and things that you, uh, you find important in your life. You know, if, if you're a guy that likes to go out once a week and eat sushi and you're not into making your own sushi, then you need to be a place where a sushi bar is somewhere nearby. I mean, or you need to understand you're giving it up. I know that sounds like a kind of a, like a left field thing, but I, I really think people do need to spend more time thinking about what they really want out of life what they want their day-to-day -day life to be like, and realize that at different stages in our lives, different things are important. As we get older, access to good medical care becomes more and more important. Uh, as we get older, sometimes proximity to family members who can help us out gets more and more important. Uh, all of those things change as we move through life. Um, I mean, otherwise, when you start getting into real property selection I can and have done entire shows on those that go an hour and a half. So I'll just throw that in there at the end, and hopefully that helps you with uh, what you were thinking about when you kind of tossed it in at the end yourself. With that, let's uh, get a, a real-time, not real-time, but just a couple-day-old report of what the heck's going on with this volcanic activity in Hawaii. Hey, Jack. This is Sean from Hawaii. Uh, I have a commentary for you on the status of our emergency response people when it comes to real natural disasters. I live one neighborhood away from the volcanic eruption that's happening in the Leilani Estates, um, a community that has thousands of people in it. And now, unfortunately, they're not quite as evacuated as they once were. They uh, mostly were all mandatorily evacuated a couple days ago. Some of them were not able to remove their stuff, and they pressured the county into trying to get back in. The county remitted gave them a, um, you know, small window to let a couple waves of necessary people in, but then people just got tired, confused, and with the lack of communication between the enforcement agents and everyone that actually knew what was going on, the um, operators in the field and the civilians, the uh, county finally broke down and let everyone back in. That was about an hour ago. There was traffic backlogged all the way up um, a couple miles up the street, and then... Um, There's been some kind of massive eruption, breakout. I see smoke from my house, and I really hope that those people are going to be okay. I tried to inform as many people as I could, but there was no real communicator there. There was no official from USGS. There was no National Guardsman that would talk to a civilian. Um, even after I did some research and talked to a chemist about protection against SO2 gas, which is the most dangerous thing out here right now, um, volatile toxic gas that's coming out of the volcano, about improvised gas filtration systems. Um, there wasn't really much time for everyone to get word. And um, I don't know. I, I'm seeing the mainstream media. They're trying to keep up with stuff like Facebook and the Internet And it's not, they're not really able to catch up, but if we're going to rely on the county, the civil defense, they haven't updated us at all. And it's getting real. Um, I'm ready to evacuate with my family. Um, and I wasn't stupid enough to try and go in there to rescue other people's belongings and possessions. But um, thank you, Jack, for what you do. I think a lot of people are going to have their eyes open after this. Take care. So I, I don't have a ton to add, but 
you know, because it is what it is, and you're getting a you know a real firsthand report, and you're hearing some of the angst and the the fear and concern in the voice of that person, because it's real for them. And what that does make me realize, though, as I think about this, is a couple things. One is how people have become accustomed to a disaster having kind of a, a predetermined time. Like a hurricane comes, and even if it's one that kind of goes stationary and causes a flooding event, you know, in a week or two, the water's reciting, there's a big mess to be cleaned up or whatever, but the the active part of the disaster is done. Ice, storms, things like that. This could be weeks, months, years. We really don't know right now. Now, historically, even with major events like this, it tends not to be years, but you don't know, we don't they don't know where this thing's going. Um, the latest reports are that um, uh, volcanologists, scientists, etc., are saying that this thing could go totally ballistic, just go nuts, explosions, and far worse than what we've seen so far. Uh, it's going to be a while before it's over. So just I, I think it helps us to understand that some, some disasters are long duration. Um, another thing that I, I've realized, because I've seen some nasty comments on YouTube, and I'm like, you people are assholes. I'm like, well, they should know. They, why do they live on a volcano or whatever? You know, almost every single natural disaster that occurs um, is likely in the place that it occurs. California got earthquakes, right? You know, the Northeast, you've got their type of damage from hurricanes, ice storms, blizzards, uh, etc. Texas coast has, you know, those types of things. Central Texas here, we have tornadoes, we have wildfires. Like, there's not many places you can go where there's no threat from nothing. Now, there are certain places where there's less of a threat or the threats are less catastrophic than an exploding volcano, but we all kind of live somewhere, man. And, and you know, we should have compassion for people that are dealing with, with hard things in their lives, uh, especially in our community. When I see the random ass clown doing it, it doesn't bother me. But when I see somebody saying it, and I know they're part of, like, our community, it really bothers me because, like, that's our whole purpose is to help people be prepared. And uh, it's easy to mock the unprepared, but I've, I've seen many times people that consider themselves preppers if they are end-of-the-world-type preppers, something like this happens, uh, something like a major storm event happens, and they're fairly ill-prepared. Uh, because when we start preparing for the unrealistic, we often end up unprepared for the realistic. So it just goes to show that at any point in time, anything can disrupt your personal life and the lives of the people around you. And so this is also a perfect illustration of my you know, threat probability and impact scale inverse relationship. And what I've always said is the less number of people that there are affected by a disaster, the greater the possibility that, you know, as an individual you'll experience it with some regional adjustments. So this is actually, at this point, caused evacuation of about 1,700 people. And if you had said, you know, a person's likely to be disrupted by a volcano in America, most people would say, yeah, maybe, probably. Here it is. Here it is. And uh, it also makes me think back to uh, 1980s when Mount St. Helens blew its top and how big a disaster volcanic activity can be and how large its you know, area of effect can be. Because I remember distinctly that we ended up with ash on our vehicles that had gotten up in some high air currents. And I was living in Jacksonville, Florida, which if you haven't checked out a map lately, 
pretty far from Washington State. Anyway, I wish everybody in Hawaii the best, and this is one to keep our eye on. And again, this won't, won't be one that's just going to go away in a day or two. Let's take another call, this one on fishing. Hey, Jack, it's Matt in East Texas. Got a quick question. Can you come up with a novice fisherman starter kit, uh, similar to what you've done in the past for novice shooters, uh, for $200 or less? Background, um, I want to get back into fishing. I haven't done any in almost 40 years when I was a Boy Scout, so I have no gear. I have limited knowledge, uh, but have access to uh, area lakes out here in East Texas that are just teeming with good stuff. So uh, I-, I love the shows where you've kitted out a gun and scope and accessories for new shooters in the past. I was wondering if you could do one for new or novice or returning fishermen. Thanks, and have a great day. So this is actually a little harder than you might think that it would be. And the reason is, it's kind of like you know, you've said, do a build for, for people that want to buy a gun. Well, uh, people that want to buy a gun will usually say, Jack, I'm looking for a uh, center fire rifle and scope combo for under $600, specifically uh, because I live in uh, Wyoming and I'll be hunting mule deer and antelope. And right there, man, I can start zeroing in on what you know their 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 best play is there from a caliber standpoint, and then take the budget and start to work that out. That you know, here's some guns that actually fit that price range and something like you know what have you. But here, it's a pretty broad thing. Now, you did give me East Texas and Lake, and since you're looking to get uh, a kit put together for under a couple hundred bucks. I assume you don't own a boat, so that puts me, and you said lake, so that puts me in the concept of shore fishing at a lake. And we still have a tremendous variety of things. So do you want to fish for mainly panfish? You know, East Texas is loaded with largemouth bass, so do you want to fish more as a bass fisherman? And catfish, those are probably your three biggest species Uh, that would be good food fish. Of course, we also have a lot of crappie available in the spring. So you see what I'm starting to say? Like, fishing is a very specialized thing. And I think what might be beneficial to you is to go listen to uh, my fishing series. Uh, but most specifically, I did do a podcast on gear for fishing. I ran that as a rewind for episode 30 of the Rewind series. I have a link to the original one, though, today in the show notes. And uh, when you're there, you that gives you a breakdown of all of the, the, the ones I had for the series planned. And there's a, a tag at the bottom. You can click and pull up all the fishing ones from that episode. Uh, specifically, the lakes one would be a good one to look at as well. And also the one on patterns. Because the way we target fish is through pattern. We know certain fish behave certain ways at certain times of the year and feed on certain things, and we look to emulate that. So those are some initial suggestions. Now, on gear, uh, I have my entire uh, selection of gear that I've reviewed so far available from T-SPAS under the tag uh, FishingAZ, and uh, I have a link in the show notes where you can look that up. Not everything in there really is specific to a beginner's thing, But there's a couple things you'll find if you scroll through there that I think would be very valuable to you. Um, The the two reels I have really come down on just loving are the Mitchell 300 series and the Akuma Avenger uh, line feeders. Uh, The ABF 30, ABF 40 are really great in this kind of general all-purpose fishing size. ABF 20 is a little bit smaller. 
Uh, but you can find all of those if you just go to the fishing tag and start scrolling. I love the Mitchell 300, though. I'm going to tell you that even though I have personally come down on the side of the Akuma Avengers with the line feeder option, uh, and if you're going to be doing a lot like catfishing and stuff like that where you're going to set a rod down, it's a really great feature, uh, but I still can't fault the Mitchell 300. So I'd go somewhere between uh, those two. And, again, I'd be with with the Akuma, which is really where I would go today, knowing everything I know, with an ABF 30 or an ABF 40. It's just the size of the reel that all we're talking about there. On a rod, I would just not even look at anything other than an Ugly Stick Elite. Uh, The Elites are the ones with the really nice guides on them, and they have cork handles. Um, I would be looking for something in the six-foot, two-piece medium action as an all-around rod. I'm a really big fan of going a little bit lighter, but since I don't know where you're going, you know, I'll tell you that that's kind of that six-foot, six-foot-six, medium, medium-light action is a really good place to be. Uh, I'm more in the light action, five-foot-six, six-foot, fast-action rods uh, because of what I like to do. Uh, but that little bit more beef to it, that's going to work well for you if you're doing, you know, fishing for bass and having to work certain lures and uh, things like that. Now, that said, if you're going to really target bass and you don't mind the learning curve, you know, a bait caster is probably a better option. Um, so, it, you know, that's where I said this is very personal. But let's say we go with an Akuma and an Ugly Stick pair. We're looking at a hundred to 120 bucks. That leaves you about eight bucks for ta- 80 bucks for tackle. That's plenty. But now you got to figure out what you want. Obviously, a good assortment of hooks and weights that can be very affordable. If we start talking about fishing with lures, that's different. Do you want to fish with bait? You see what I'm saying? This is actually hard to do um, unless you're specifically targeting something. And then in certain instances, I don't know how much help I'd be. You know, I'll throw a, a, a rubber worm or a gets it or something like that or jig and pig for bass every once in a while. But I'm not really a bass fisherman. You know, I'm, I'm a cat fisherman and a pan fisherman, uh, and, and I love fish for white bass. So most of my artificials that I use are going to be on the white bass side. I'm a big fan of like a good one-ounce slab, like a TNT bomber slab for those. You know, and you can go through, if you're gearing up for that, you can go through 80 bucks pretty quick buying a bunch of different colors and, and shapes just on slabs. So you got to really think about what you want to do. For most people, I think, you know, a good assortment of hooks, different size weights, things like that, and get out and fish, and then you'll find what you need. You'll meet other people fishing, emulate their techniques, see what they're using, but... I, you know, I'm going to say that base of the Ugly Stick Elite Rod, that is the best quality rod for the money that you can get, in my opinion, without spending more money on just the rod than you want to spend on everything. And the Akuma Avenger Reels, I am such a fan of them. If not the Akuma, look to the Mitchell 300. It's one of the better, you know, fairly priced, mid-priced, uh, modern spinning reels. I'm a big fan of open-face spinning reels. I feel like there's nothing you can't do with an open-face spinning reel, other than maybe pitching a jig can be kind of annoying because you end up getting them hung up on the on the crank of the reel. And I'm sure some of the bass fishermen will write in and talk about the control you get with the thumb on the spool. I understand that from white bass fishing and striper fishing as well, but I can do anything with an open-face fo- reel. It's got a pretty quick learning curve. You don't get a lot of backlashes, etc. So I, I, I just prefer that particular uh, a model of reel for most of my fishing. Uh, 
So that's the best I can do for you here. Uh, maybe I'll think about going and revisiting the gearing up segment and doing more of like some of the other shows I've said were like A, B, C, D, here's your package, and he, then you know here's your modules you can plug into it. That could actually get quite long, and it could get a bit tedious for people that don't fish. And I try to keep the shows, even if it's not your thing, that any individual show gives you something worth listening to. So hopefully that gives you kind of a, a kick in the right direction. The big thing is just get out and give it a shot. And uh, pick a good rod and reel combination. Uh, for line, there's a billion options. Starting out, Berkeley Trilene, uh, 12 pound is a pretty good all around line. I like to go down at 8 pound, 6 pound for some things. But if you told me, like, okay, you need to be as prepared as you can uh, for you know most scenarios, I'd probably do like an 8 and a 12. And the nice thing about the Akuma Avenger reel is it comes with two spools. So you can spool one up with some 8 and some up with some 12, and that way it's a real quick swap out uh, if you decide for one reason or another you want to go to lighter or heavier line than you're currently using. Again, hope that helps you. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hey, Jack. Neil, West Tennessee. Um, questions on building a house. Uh, what are your thoughts? What would you do uh, with a with a blank slate if you were to build your own house? Um You know, details, I, I found uh, 40 acres. I'm going to lowball uh, some folks out here in West Tennessee and uh, uh, try to get it. Uh, it's undesirable for builders because it only perks for one house. Um, I've already checked out the details. It's where I want it. But, uh, you know, would you put in things like a tornado shelter? And if you did, would you put in uh, NBC capabilities like from Safe Castle? Uh, websites, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, some other things. So there's a lot of design considerations. Is there anything that you would add in uh, other than something like that? Uh, and then how far would you go uh, with with some of these uh, specialty details? And I'm not talking about just, you know, amenities that, you know, you want, a good kitchen, a living room, big dining room, et cetera. Uh, but anyway, uh, appreciate your thoughts and uh, look forward to hearing Uh, here Thank you. Bye. So that's a, a, a pretty broad question there. So let's start out with uh, aspect. I want the house. If I have my druthers, I want a house to face south. Uh, it makes everything that we do from an energy planning standpoint down the road easier and better. Uh, south facing with a reasonable pitch to the roof. You want to add solar in the future. You're set up ideally at that point. If you decide that you, if you're ever, you know, the mind that you would ever want an attached greenhouse to a house, think about more than just the aspect, but what that would look like. Because I have a south facing house, and there ain't a good place to put a friggin' greenhouse on it, on the south side of the house. It just isn't. It doesn't really make sense in any way, shape, or form because of the layout of the house and the layout of the exterior. So that would be like another thing that you would think of. So that really is not saying do that or do, don't do that. That's really saying like think about long term the things that you're not even going to do when you build it that you're going to want and how will those things fit in the future would be a good thing. Um, next up, no one ever said anywhere I ever was, God, I wish this room was smaller. I think my main complaint with most production houses is the rooms are smaller than they should be. And I mean this with houses that have three bedrooms, four bedrooms, or six bedrooms. I've been in six-bedroom houses and go, dead gone, why are all the bedrooms 10 foot by 10 foot? So 
think about you know whoever you're working with as a builder, architect, etc., making rooms a little bit bigger than they would normally be. Um, that adds a tremendous amount to the resale value, and not just the resale value, the marketability. When people walk into a house and they feel like the rooms are large, uh, it makes the house sell really, really well because. You know, especially when people are looking like what their kids are going to live in, whatever. And, you know, you go in and you look at a room's nine by ten, and you're a parent that wants your kid to have, you know, a nice room. That's like a big closet anymore in the minds of the average American. So, a bit bigger room. Really think about the layout of the kitchen so that you can have as much counter and cabinet space as possible uh, and some level of open concept. Think about bedrooms, and I want to put my bedrooms, if possible, on the on on the, the, the north side of the house where it's cool. And specifically, your coolest place is going to be your northeast to, to north center of a house. We tend to sleep better when we're cool. We like to be cool when we're asleep. Even in the winter when you might want to be a bit warmer, you know, you can always have some way of providing heat or whatever. But a lot of times when people go to sleep and they initially feel like it's kind of cold, once they get under the blankets and all, you know, they, they, their body heat is retained, and they, they're plenty warm to sleep, and they sleep better. So think about making sure that, uh, you know, because you, you can't have every room in a cool zone based on your solar aspect, but you can choose the ones that go there. On a tornado shelter, if I was going to build a house from scratch anywhere where tornadoes are likely, yes, of some sort, shape, or kind. Um, now, a, a good friend of mine from Arkansas named Sean was a builder by trade. Uh, built a house for his family. Really, be- you know, builders generally build themselves really nice houses. And off his master bedroom, he had a, 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 um, a you know a big, beautiful master closet. And in the back of that master closet was a sliding concrete door, and that's where he kept his guns. And that was their tornado shelter. And it was just done with poured concrete walls, and it was really easy to do because they planned it when they built the home. Assuming you're not going to have a basement, that's kind of the way that I would go. Nuclear, biological, chemical filtration. It's not where I'm putting my money. I'm not going to fault someone that does it. I don't care what they keep saying about Iran. Iran's not going to develop a nuclear missile and, and nuke freaking Tennessee. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Don't let the current hysteria, everybody losing their minds, just like they were over North Korea just a few months ago, get in your head. Um, again, it's not something I'll ever come down on somebody for investing their money in. I just think that it goes pretty low on my threat probability scale of what I want to do. Tornadoes, on the other hand, most people do not know this, but the state of Tennessee is most years number one for the most amount of deaths in tornadic storms. Uh, That is a combination of of a couple things. One is there's an awful lot of people that live in mobile homes in Tennessee. Well, there's also an awful lot of people that live in mobile homes in many other states. It's not just that. It is partially because Tennessee is a much bigger state than it is in the heads of most people. I think tip to tip coming in like, you know, out of Virginia toward Bristol all the way to Memphis is a little bit over 500 miles. So it's a very long state right in the middle of you know the major storm central components of the U.S. with a lot of people living in older homes and stuff. That said, it still means they get an awful lot of freaking tornadoes in Tennessee. If I was building a house from scratch, if it was possible, I would do a basement. I would do a basement because it basically doubles your square footage and can be finished off as you choose. 
It provides a great storage environment, and it basically doubles your square footage for nowhere near the cost that typically of adding a second floor above a house. I would personally not build a two-story house if I was doing it from scratch. I don't have anything against two-story houses. I own one. But if I was planning one, I'd rather have a single-story kind of sprawling house to get the footage I want out of it uh, than an upstairs. If it's going to be your forever home, you're going to get older. You ain't going to want to go up there. Your hips and your back's going to hurt. Trust me, I know. And, you know, looking at folks a bit older than me, I know it doesn't stop. So it keeps getting more and more the case. So that's, you know, I would build a one-story home. More efficient to heat, more efficient to build. Uh, especially when you have that much land and you're not. The reason that two stories are so popular in America today is two things. One, if we do a split concept with the master downstairs and the kids upstairs, it gives parents and kids separation. That's one reason. But the biggest reason is because we're trying to fit so many dadgone homes into such a small land footprint that we can make a bigger home by going up, especially in places where basements don't work well or they've kind of fallen out of favor. So I would you know, opt for that single, single floor design, uh, kind of sprawling, bigger than average rooms. If the average home... Uh, in your area, you know, has a living room that's uh, 16 by 20. I'd want to build, you know, at least 18 by 22, probably 20 by 24 for a living room. You know, if the average master bedroom is, is 14 by 16, I want to go 16 by 20 minimum. I want to do it because it just makes your life better. It makes it easier to arrange furniture. It gives you the ability to rearrange things. A lot of times in smaller rooms, everything works just fine. If you put the couch on one wall, et cetera, when we make the room bigger, we're able to do more things with it, and it makes the home more marketable. Uh, people say, well, if the bigger house is harder to clean, less people, that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all, and people don't really think that way when they spend their money. So these are some of the things that I'm going to think about. I'm also going to look about what are my options from a structural standpoint, doing structural foam, uh, you know, if we're going to do uh, SIPs, that's what I'm really talking about there, uh, steel frame, whatever. I'm going to really take a look at all of the different technologies based on the builders that are able to do them where I am. I might come to two different construction technologies, but I've got one contractor to pick from for it in my area, and he ain't exactly stellar on his reviews. And I might look at another technology and go, it's not the best one, but it's good, and i got five builders to pick from, and two of them have really good reviews. So you know, those are other things I'm going to look at. And time of construction, I'm going to put in that too. It's great, you know, this particular technology is going to save me X dollars on my energy bills, but if it's going to take me a year before my home's done, or a year and a half, maybe I don't really want it. So these are the types of things that I'm going to really think about. And, uh, again, all of this goes back to budget and how you prioritize things. But I would never give up the opportunity to put in a shelter from tornadoes in tornado country. Uh, and I would never give up the opportunity to do a basement if it makes sense, given the landform, water table, all that other stuff. I think it is one of the most awesome things a home can have is a big basement. I really wish I had one here. Uh, of course, I'd be in a limestone cave if I did, but it would be pretty cool. With that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, i got a question for you about artichokes. We've got several globe artichokes, and they're big, pretty huge plants. And I keep seeing contradictory stuff on whether or not you can eat the leaves. I mean, I'm just curious if you knew whether or not you could, and if you can, how, you know, any tips on uh, per preparation on them? 
Appreciate it. So I guess there's two ways to take this question. One would be the leaves of the artichoke itself, the, uh, the, the part that we typically see cooked. And generally speaking, the way that you cook an artichoke is you kind of cut the top off it, prune off all the little pricklies off of the leaves that don't get cut off the top. And I got a video where you can see this linked in the show notes. And then, you know, we either roast it or steam it or something like that, and you pull those outer leaves off, and there's kind of like a little fleshy part at the bottom of those leaves that's really good, and you kind of just grab it with your teeth and pull that off, kind of sort of like eating crab, I guess, in a way. And then people have different opinions about this, but when you get down to a certain level, you'll see, like, really tender leaves that are petals that are – it's really petals, not leaves, that are in the choke itself, and that'll pull off in, like, one big clump. A lot of people still feel like you eat those the same way. To me, there's a point where you get far enough inside, those those petals are really tender, because what it really is is a flower. And uh, they, they, they taste pretty damn gone good whole once you get into a certain spot, and you kind of get to where you know. And then there's this thing called a choke. And the choke is the purple. It doesn't look purple when you get in there, but if you let artichokes go to full flower, it's this purple... Uh, flower uh, stems that are in there, stamens probably actually, and uh, really, really pretty. And that has to come out. It's really fibrous. It's nasty. Uh, it, uh, there's a you know mythology. It'll make you choke and kill you. That's what they call it. No, it's just like anything furry. Like if you got hair in your mouth, right, it would kind of choke you. So you you pull that out, and then what's underneath it, down to the the base of the stalk, is the true heart. Uh, but a lot of times when you see like fried artichoke hearts, it'll be that piece plus those those petals, leaves, whatever they are, just above the choke that are tender as well uh, before they get hard because they're in the inside sort of blanched. Uh, but those outer petals, no. Then I guess the other part you could be asking about is the leaves of the plant themselves. There's a plant called the cardoon. It is in the same family as the artichoke. And it and artichokes are both really thistles is what they are. And... The stems and young leaves, really the stems, though, of the cardoon is often eaten. A uh, very big thing in Spain. But what they do is they take the young shoots and they blanch it, which means they basically either hill up dirt around it and so the sun can't get to it or bind it up with something like a twine and an outer wrapping. And then the inner leaves that are, and the, I'm sorry, the inner stalks that are really tender They'll take those and eat those. I don't know if you can do that with artichoke or not. Uh, my instinct is, since they're so closely related, you probably could. But just the big old leaves and stems off the plant, I, I don't think it would hurt you to eat them. I just don't think you'd want to. So that's my thoughts on that. If anybody has more information on this or if the fellow that called in has got any clarifying information, let me know. But... Uh, Artichokes are a great thing. I just don't think we really want to be eating the leaves or the outer petals, either or. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Tom from New York. My question is, how many inches of topsoil do I need for grass, and how deep should a garden bed be, given the following details? When I first purchased my home, the entire yard was beach sand. In an effort to regrade the property and get some firmness to the ground, a friend got me 90 yards of fill delivered for free, and he even spread it out and regraded the property. The problem is that the fill was compromised mainly of rock and crushed rock. When it's dry, it's as though my entire yard is a concrete slab. When it's wet, a giant mud pit. My plan is to hopefully get away with 
spreading two to four inches of topsoil for the yard and eight inches for the garden bed. Thank you, Jack. P.S. I will send pics in an email with the subject of TSPC listener call soil depth. Thank you. So your numbers should work. Um, I mean, I got a lot of grass here that's sitting in, you know, four inches of not quite topsoil on top of a limestone slab. But as long as we get enough water, it does pretty well. Uh, and what you're talking about is not slab and is permeable or it wouldn't get all muddy and mucky when it rains. And from the pictures, I'd say the same. You know, if you could have more, sure. But, I mean, you only have, you know, so much money to spend on dirt. Uh, with a garden, eight inches should be sufficient. Um, Mel Bartholomew, in his book on uh, square foot gardening, came up with a number of six inches. But the majority of the roots in most of the garden plants that we have, other than deep tap-rooted things like carrots, etc., grow within that six inches of soil anyway. So you should be fine at eight inches. I will say this. A lot of times people think they're going to bring topsoil in and have a garden just plant into it. Topsoil is fill. Now, it's better quality fill than what your buddy got you for free. And I'm not so sure that it was a good deal for free. Um, I may have just needed to go somewhere and you were a place it could be put. But um, topsoil is pretty inert. It, it doesn't have a lot going on, especially when you buy it. It's pretty sterile. So whatever you put in topsoil for a garden, you're going to want to amend that significantly with compost and organic matter and mulch. And you're going to want to heavily fertilize in your first year of production with whenever you build a garden bed, if you're going to build it based on topsoil that you purchased, you're going to want to heavily fertilize in addition to all that organic matter in your first year. And by heavily fertilized, I mean at least twi twice what the application rate says on the bag or the bottle it comes in. And you want to use, obviously, an organic fertilizer, something like Dr. Earth that I recommend, uh, liquid or solid, and I recommend both. And I recommend really spending a lot of extra time focusing on fertility in that first year. Uh, with that new stuff because, again, whatever you buy is probably not going to have a lot going on for it. Uh, with grass, same sort of kind of thing, except it probably ain't as you know big a deal. Uh, grass, as long as it gets enough uh, water, will tend to, to survive just about anywhere. It's why we use it as a turf, um, and it probably come along pretty quick for you. And then that underlayment of rock and all, assuming there's no nastiness or something in it like that, it's, you know, some kind of chemical, it probably actually will do really well because it'll probably be a good supplier of uh, minerals and things like that. And it sounds like it actually does kind of sort of drain okay, basically. It drains down to the subsoil that was kind of muddy and mucky, and it floats some of it up and kind of floats around on it. And then when it dries up, it, it hardens is what it looked like. So you get it covered over and get it uh, a good vegetation layer established. It should do pretty good for you, and those numbers should work out. Um If you can do a little more, do a little more. It won't. You'll never say, gee, I wish there was less topsoil, right? Uh, no matter what situation you're in, you almost never say that unless you have to dig a hole to get past it. Um, but you might wish for some more. But you can always bring in more if you need it. You might find that 80% of the area covered for the grass does fine, and you have an area where it's still a problem, and then you can just spot apply more in the future. Let's take another one. I think this is the last one of the day. 
Hey, Jack, David here. I have a question for you. What is your recommendation for a Trapper Air Pistol um, background? I'm off and out, and I would like to do a little squirrel and rabbit hunting, and my 22 air rifle is just a little too big. I recently got a smaller vehicle. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, looking for something at the lower price point, something maybe a mid price point, and if money wasn't a concern. Thank you. All right, so it, it's I'm a little confused because you said a trapper air pistol, and then you say you want to hunt rabbits and squirrels with it. So when I think of a trapper's pistol, I think of you're running your trap line, and you know you have to dispatch raccoon and fox and things like that that are in your leg hole traps. And for that, you know, I'm going to recommend a 22 firearm. I really am, but that's not what you say you're doing. Maybe you mean hunting while trapping. I, I don't know, but when you start looking at animals the size that we we trap, I, I I know you can kill them with an air pistol, but I really am going to want to be more in the neighborhood of a, a 22 uh, rimfire. Uh, I just think it's a better, more humane, more dependable solution. Just so we're clear. Now, squirrels and rabbits are actually well within the capabilities. And when I say well within, I mean unlike, yeah, I can shoot a fox in the head with a .22 air pistol and it'll probably kill it. Uh, if I shoot a rabbit in the head with a .22 air pistol, it's dead. Uh, it's no probably about it, uh, assuming it's a good solid hit. And uh, so in, in that realm and, and figuring that's what you are really looking for, I came up with several different options from you. Not really a mid-priced, uh, you know, a low-price, mid-price, and high-price. I've actually got three for you that uh, are on the uh, on the the mid-price tier within just a few bucks of each other. Uh, the first one I got links to all of them in the show notes, so you can just pull up the show notes for today, and you can get over and take a look at each one of them. The first one's from Crossman. It's the P thirteen twenty two, and uh, this is a, a pump-action, variable, uh, single-shot, uh, pump-powered pellet pistol. So this works a lot like your old pellet guns when you use a kid. You know, you could pump one pump and shoot at each other. I'm not saying you should, but we used to have BB gun wars with one or two pumps would be the most you could do. And, you know, if you had a dumb buddy, he might start playing Escalation with you and throw in four and... He'd throw in six, and he'd find out you're a better shot and stop doing that and call truce. Uh, but anyway, uh, don't do that. I mean, that was just stupid 80s kid shit. Uh, but it works like that. You, you pump it up. You feed in one pellet. Uh, it's about 50 bucks. It has a muzzle velocity of about 460 feet per second. Uh, it's well within the parameters of what you want. The downside is since it's variable pump, you really do need to put six to eight pumps in it to get the significant velocity that you're looking for uh, for good quick kills. I own the 177 caliber version of this exact gun. I have a video on YouTube of me playing around with it. They are accurate for what they are. Um, and, you know, they do a good job. They also make a kind of a, a, a stock uh, that goes on and turns them into a really short carbine. If you don't want to carry a rifle, that probably doesn't make sense. But one of these slung over your back with that stock on it is actually pretty pretty small, pretty compact. 
None of these are really little. And now, just say the other thing about this is it's got a significant barrel length to it to pull off the velocity, and it's not something that's going to carry really nice in a holster for you. It's going to be something either you're going to want to sling carry, bag carry, something like that. So that might have an impact on whether you think uh, that one's right for you or not. Uh, the next one up I have is also by Crossman. It probably will carry okay in a larger holster. It's also about $60. Bucks. So it's about $10 more. It is the 2240 bolt-action CO2 pistol. It has a velocity, a, a exact same maximum velocity, about 460 pounds. Again, it is CO2 powered. Both of these two are about two pound guns, and that's that's nice that they're relatively lightweight uh, for you as you know a pistol uh, anyway. Um, so those are two to consider. On the CO2, what I like about it is it would definitely carry. And I mean, if I'm going to carry a pistol for something like this, probably shoulder holster. Right, you know, you're not gonna get in trouble with the law for it because it's a pellet gun. You don't have to worry about where open carry is legal where you are or whatever. Always check local regulations for anything though, and don't go to Walmart with it on you. You probably get shot by some cop that's an idiot or something. Um, but it would carry really well like that and be right there for you that type of thing. And I find shoulder holsters to be one of the most comfortable ways to carry, especially a hunting size handgun. Uh, like if I'm out with uh, with with my Ruger Redhawk, I have a Ruger Redhawk 44, and that's how I prefer to carry that if I was out hunting with it. Uh, you wouldn't probably need a holster that size for this gun. You'd have to kind of figure out what works for it. But some, you know, by Uncle Mike's or Bianchi or something like that, probably work well. The downside is, is since it's CO2, it's another it's another input to it. But they're relatively inexpensive. You can get you know a, a good collection of them, and you're good. What I find, though, with CO2 pistols is once you put that cartridge in there, it's not a good idea for them to be stored that way. So if you go out and you don't get any shooting in that day, you know, you target practice till it's empty or, you know, you've just opened it up and let the air out of it and you've lost it. Uh, so that's the downside, that additional expense. But it's not a huge additional expense. And I think for your application, it's probably a better choice. I'm not saying it is a better choice. I'm saying it's probably a better choice. The next one I have for you is made by Benjamin. And it is the Trail NP Brake Barrel Air Pistol. Uh, and it also has a, uh, a fairly decent uh, muzzle velocity. The thing I don't like about it is it's a .177 caliber, and it, this is it, it's still I felt that it was a good idea to find something for you that had a little bit more zip to it. It's got a muzzle velocity about 625 feet per second. Uh, it's certainly more than capable of doing the job on small game. But again, I'm not if I, you know if we're going to be killing stuff with it, I prefer a .22. That the added energy makes up for the reduced velocity. However, what I like about the Benjamin Trail is that it has got a dovetail on the rear receiver, and that means that rear sight will come right off, and you can put on you know, a red dot or something like that or a pistol scope or, or what have you. And with that, they're very accurate. I, I, doing some research for you, I watched quite a few you know, video reviews of them, checked out Pyramid Air's uh, thoughts on it, and they're really a good place to get information on air guns. Uh, and it's it's accurate. It's powerful and it's accurate. There's the downside. It weighs over four pounds. That's pretty heavy for a pistol. It's pretty long barreled with a muzzle brake, which reduces the compact nature of it. Um, 
And so that is a negative as far as I'm concerned. Since it really is a nitro piston air rifle shortened with a pistol grip on it, it's a fairly heavy uh, brake barrel cock. Uh, if you think about how hard a good stiff nitro brake barrel uh, pellet gun is when you go to break that barrel, now shorten the barrel down and don't have that long stock to put up against your leg or what have you, and it's it, it takes some oof behind it to, to cock that barrel. Not enough to really turn me off of it, but from a standpoint, if you're trying to make a second shot and you're trying to be fast and you were out walking around in the summer and your hands are sweaty, it, it will slow down that follow-up capability. Um, personally, if it was me between those three for the application that you're, you're, you're asking about, I would go with the CO2 model. Um, it gives you multiple shots. It gives you follow-up. It's a hell of a lot of fun just to play around with. Um, so that's the way I would go for 60 bucks in that $50 to $60 range. Now, you said, well, what if money was no object? Well, I'm back into the .22 caliber world, but I'm sticking with Benjamin. Benjamin makes a .22 caliber air pistol called the Marauder. Uh, it will get about 30 to 45 shots, depending on how charged you get it, because it is a PCP, which is a pre-charged pneumatic uh, air pistol. Uh, so you're going to be set back another 100 to 200 bucks for a pump to charge it with if you're going to do that manually or you're going to need dive tanks or something like that to charge it up. It is very powerful. It is very powerful. We're talking 22 caliber pellets at about 700 feet per second. We are not into 25, uh, 22 rimfire range, but we are up into deadly weapon range, definitely. All of these can be dangerous, but you, you get what I'm saying. It has an eight-round uh, magazine, repeater magazine. Uh, it is bolt action, so after each shot, it's you, know, you pull the bolt back and return it. Um, but it's three hundred ten bucks. Uh, but it's awesome. They also, my to my knowledge, make this in a twenty-five caliber as well, and that might be worth stepping up to if you're going to spend this kind of money. It does come with a stock that makes it into a very short carbine. I think you really got something at this that point. It doesn't have any sights on it. It is a dovetail receiver, uh, so you can do red dot or small pistol scope, long eye relief, that type of thing. Uh, I think it's really nice. I wouldn't spend my 300 bucks on it, but if you were asking me for an upper-end recommendation for an air pistol, it would be the one I would come down on. Again, I've, I've got them all available to you uh, in the show notes with links on Amazon where you can take a better look at them. And... Uh, Hopefully that'll point you in the right direction. Any of them will work for the intended purposes. Any of them will kill squirrels and rabbits. Just realize, like shot placement is so key with these. Um, you know, I've I've broken down and taken behind the the, the shoulder shots on rabbits with uh, air rifles in general and air pistols in general before. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Really, we're talking headshot behind the ear, neck right where neck joins the head, through the eyeball, front between the eyes. That's, I mean, that's the, the money shots with these. So stay within your limits if that's what you're going to do. But it is a lot of fun and it's a cool, challenging thing to do. Um, I am probably going to, within this, you know, going into next year, get more into the PCP air rifles. I think that there's a lot of cool stuff that can be done with them. Uh, the, the sizes can be kept down on them. 
And uh, I think that if you want to step into the world of air rifle hunting, they are kind of the cutting edge and where you really want to be. Again, they're called PCPs, pre-charged pneumatic. And uh, they do require some additional equipment, but I think what you get out of them is totally worth it. I think I said that was the last one. It's not. I got one more. This one on nickel metal hydride batteries. Hi, Jack. This is Dave. I had a question about uh, rechargeable nickel metal hydride batteries. I was wondering, is there a good way to tell when a battery is at the end of its life and, and isn't going to pull the charge? I've got quite a few of these batteries uh, around, and they're all kind of just dumped in a thing and recharged. But I think some of them aren't really holding a charge as long as they, sh- as they should when they're in use. I thought that you or Stephen or someone might know how to check that easily. Thanks for all you do. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, my rechargeable batteries, no matter what kind they are, are not something that I get really wound up about, and they start to seem like they're not working very well anymore. I just decide it's time for them to get retired. Um, but I actually did look into this in the in the past, and, uh, you know, I'm not uh, a battery geek like Steve Harris, uh, and he could give you much longer explanations uh, than I will, but there's... To me, and there's more that you can look at, there's two things that you really look at when it comes to uh, rechargeable batteries, uh, assuming that you've run them through a discharge cycle and all and done what you could to you know, get them going again if they started to not perform well. And one is internal resistance. Uh, and and this is the, the higher the internal resistance gets, and I'm not going to get into the technicals on it, but the higher that number gets, the, the closer toward the end of the life cycle the battery is. However, that is a relative number to, well, what is that internal resistance when the battery's brand spanking new? Uh, the other would just be looking at if the device you're using to charge is intelligent enough to tell you how many milliamp hours of power it's able to put in the battery before the battery stops taking charge. When you get down to a point of, if you say, let's say it had a uh, uh, 1,800 milliamp battery cell, and it's now only taking around 900 milliamps of charge. It's down to about 50% of its original uh, capacity. I think it's time to look at sending that to the battery recycling center, battery graveyard, battery heaven, whatever you want to call it. All right, I, That's kind of my litmus test there. The good news is there's a very affordable charger, an intelligent charger, and I use uh, the same charger Stephen Harris recommends with the in-loop batteries, But when I wanted to actually have this capability, I thought, well, why not get a tester that's also an additional charger since testers were, you know, good testers were 20, 30 bucks. And I found this one's made by a company called Opus. It's the BTC2400 Charger Analyzer Tester for AA's and AAA's, which is what we tend to recommend and probably what you have. Um, And it will tell you both of the pieces of information that I. Uh, mentioned it can show you uh, what the internal resistance is in the battery, and if you know what it was when you started, you do that. But we'll also let you know the amount of milliamp hours it's able to put into the battery. We we'll do an estimate for you and say you know you have 1,100 milliamp hours here, and if you started out with 1,500 when that battery was new, well, you know that's about how much degradation and performance that you have. Now, as far as internal resistance, there's a whole big giant technical explanation for it, and you can do it with. 
your own you know test equipment or whatever I have if you want to geek out on it or whatever I have an article that I've linked to today that you can read in the interest of keeping this short not boring 85% of the people I'll forego that and just say that this little tester charger is a great little tester charger and we can run you know four batteries in there as though they're a single four cell unit or we can run them individually it gives us a lot of information it is an intelligent charger so it's not going to overcharge your batteries uh, it can handle up to 20,000 milliamp hours of charge across four batteries it charges quickly I don't like it as much as the, the charger that we generally recommend because it only charges four batteries at a time. But if you want a tester, again, why not expand your charging capability and get the testing capability? Uh, it's got 117 reviews and uh, four and a half stars. Work, works well. I own one myself. That's what I would recommend for you. And I would just recommend not getting over the top over freaking batteries. Um, you know... Rechargeable batteries last a long damn time. They do have a, a life expectancy. They do run out after a certain number of charges and discharges. You're still so far ahead of the game at that point uh, than buying you know, new batteries every time you need new batteries. Uh, from a preparedness standpoint, being able to charge them from your car, uh, your, your battery bank, what have you, your generator, keep all your devices running. Just accept the fact that when they're not performing well anymore, it's time for them to go to battery heaven and be reborn, uh, reincarnated is something new. Um, and do try to do that. If there's a way that you have available for battery recycling that you can turn them in for that, try to do that rather than add them to a landfill. Uh, it just makes sense. That brings us to our item of the day, which is kind of weird. It fits right in with uh, the question on fishing today. Uh, what actually happened, a guy emailed me, and he said, Hey, uh, you talked about this 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 uh, rod and reel combination for kids and I just moved into this new place and it's got a nice stock tank on it and I want my kid to start fishing and what is it so I just decided this morning I would run it as the item of the day for him and uh, just relist it because it's one I did you know a year and a half ago and uh, then that call came in you know right after I did that so it is a fishing item it is the Shakespeare Ugly Stick GX2 Spin Cast Youth Combo. And the reason I love this combo is the it's a forty dollar combo and the rod's worth about forty bucks. So I get the reel for free. The reel is a closed face reel, which is best for kids, um, and it's not a high end one. It's probably worth about twelve to sixteen dollars if you bought the reel itself. It's very similar to the Zepco two hundred two if you're familiar with that. Um, however, it is a good reel, and it does a good job. And I, I believe the push button closed face reel. As much as I love an open face spinning reel myself, this is the reel for kids. If you want to fish with your kid, let him try to cast. If you want to, once he can cast, you want to fish too, and you don't want to spend 90% of your time untangling shit, this is what you want for a kid as a push-button reel. Like I said, this reel will wear out at some point, or it may not even wear out. It may be that just like it's time to kind of step up. The rod is such a damn good rod. This is, again, a rod made by Ugly Stick. It's a GX2. It's a bait-casting-style rod. So you would either go to a, a higher-end push-button or a, you know, a bait-casting reel uh, for it. But it can grow with your kid. And, again, the rod's worth as much as they're selling the combo for. And I like that. Because if you're buying a rod for a kid, they're probably not going to take real good care of it. And an Ugly Stick rod, if you break an Ugly Stick rod... You've done something wrong. Really, really, really wrong. I mean, they are bulletproof 
almost, until you actually shoot them with a bullet. And uh, so the rod will survive the childhood abuse, and as they get older and more responsible, you can invest more in a reel and continue to use that rod. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you get a kid that rod and they become a lifelong fisherman, it'll probably get used at some point when they're an adult, maybe even handed down. Not the reel, but the rod. So that's a much better investment as far as I'm concerned. Again, the Shakespeare Ugly Stick GX2 Spin Cath used combo. I'm of the day at tspaz.com, and you can always support us. Whenever you're going to shop online, just by going to tspaz.com first. And we really appreciate when you do that. It really helps us out. All of our reviews are there, uh, listed by category. You can pull them up individually. And remember, if you find it at tspaz.com, reviewed by me, I didn't research it online and say, hey, this is cool, and put it out there. I own it. I use it. I've put my hands on it. I've spent my money on it before I recommend that you do the same. That brings us to our song of the day, man. Talk about uh, spending your money on things you work for. What a great song to talk about that with. How about Blue Collar Man by Styx? As we continue to uh, move forward through Styx Weeks, we have one more song after uh, today's. Blue Collar Man's a song like, if you don't think you've heard this song, you'll hear the guitar at the beginning of the song go, oh, I've heard this song. Unless you're like 22 or younger, or you've been living under a rock your whole life, you have, seen, you have heard this song before. It was incredibly popular uh, in the 70s when it came out, but all through the 80s and into the 90s even. It's been in quite a few TV shows and stuff like that. And it is what it sounds like. It's about blue-collar men. But it's really about a guy that doesn't have a job. And all he wants is a shot. He'll do anything. Give me an opportunity and I'll make something out of it. And I think there's a, a real statement about the times. I think a lot of people that are young, really young, 20s and younger especially, you know, even 30s, like 30 and younger, probably don't remember anything to do with the recession of the 1970s. Folks, it was bad. It was bad. It was 2008, 2009 bad, but it lasted from about 72 to 81. And it was still kind of hanging on in 82. You, see, you understand that? Like, it was... It was what we call stagflation. It just was a sideways skid of the economy. Nothing got better, nothing got any worse, but it was already shitty, and then there's more people, so there's less jobs. I mean, it sucked. But what people were, not, were saying is, not we need more welfare, not we need to extend unemployment, we need to fix the economy, and the jobs that were there, when people were looking, it was give me a chance. Give me anything that I can do, and I'll take the chance and I'll go for it. I think that's something we could learn from. And we always talk about like the greatest generation and World War II and all. That ain't that long ago, guys. I was a kid back then, but it ain't that, I ain't that old yet. I'm getting there. The other thing about this song I thought was cool, and I looked it up on Song Facts, is where it came from. So Sticks get off tour, and they decide to go fishing to have a party on the boat, and they tell the captain in advance, we're going to be partying. And this is Sticks in their heyday. The cab is thinking it's going to be a pretty wild ride. Well, on the way there, the cab driver that drops them off gives them some pot. And apparently, especially for the 1970s, this was some good stuff. And they got so damn zonked out, they were just sitting there, huh, cool, right? They were in total Tetris Twinkie mode, but had no Twinkies, and Tetris had not yet been invented. So they sat on this boat for about an hour and a half saying and doing absolutely nothing while the captain churned that motor and headed out to where they were going to fish. About after an hour to an hour and a half, they kind of came around and started just going on and doing things. 
Well, the way that relates to this song is they're sitting there listening to the motors on this boat turn at these low RPMs. So after Tommy Shaw comes back from his pot-fueled deep-sea fishing trip, having listened to those motors churn with that you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been on like a big boat that's moving slowly out there on the ocean and gets an acoustic guitar and comes up with the guitar for this and then eventually it becomes the song Blue Collar Man. That's a kind of the history of rock and roll type thing there that a lot of people wouldn't know. Came out originally in 1978 on the album Pieces of Eight. Blue Collar Man by Sticks. One more day to go in Sticks Weeks. Hope you, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.